Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them. And we know that his testimony is true. For there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's debatable who our greatest composer was. It tends to come down between Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. Kind of, um, you know, depends on your preference. You know, maybe some of you are saying Lennon and McCarthy, but nonetheless, in classical music, uh, we tend to come down to the big three. And one of the more interesting, intriguing aspects of, of Beethoven, Beethoven was a fascinating character. Um, and certainly uh, much has been written about his personality, uh, his tortured self. And one of the more interesting things that was found um, posthumously was a series of 10 letters that were never sent. Apparently they were never sent, written in pencil. And it was addressed to his immortal beloved. Uh, Beethoven never married. Uh, There certainly were female muses in his life and there was a movie uh, probably what 10 years ago or so that speculated about who the immortal beloved was but we we really don't know but this is an excerpt from this letter that Beethoven apparently never sent so without you pursued by the kindness of the people here and there whom I mean to desire to earn just as little as they earn humility of men towards men it pains me And when I regard myself in connection with the universe, what I am and what he is, whom one calls the greatest, and yet there lies herein again the godlike of man. As you too love, yet I love you stronger. But never hide yourself from me. Good night, O God, so near, so far. It is not a real building of heaven, our love, but as firm, too, as the citadel of heaven." Very interesting. You know, Beethoven is a very enlightenment figure, and yet he couldn't help but this idea of the beloved divinity, immortal heaven kind of enters into his his tortured rhetoric. And it's kind of fitting that this person is anonymous. It adds to the great uh, enigma that Beethoven was. But the Bible is not anonymous when it comes to the beloved. It's nearly on every page, either explicitly or implicitly. Who is the immortal's beloved? Well, for God so loved Abraham and Sarah. 
For God so loved Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Miriam. For God so loved his chosen people. For God so loved Mary Magdalene and Thomas. For God so loved the cosmos. The very clear message of the Bible is that we are God's beloved. Our Old Testament lesson, I purposely picked from Song of Songs. Now, from a critical perspective, basically the Song of Songs is a romantic, erotic poem celebrating the love between a bride and uh, her betrothed. One can argue it's actually a celebration of chaste love. But nonetheless, I think it's important to understand, and I think it's a, uh, a whole other way of talking or a whole other series of sermons that this love poem is part of the Holy Scriptures. I think sometimes the church's relationship with love and physical love has been somewhat tortured and problematic. (laughs) So that's another sermon. But nonetheless, I think that's part of why this is in the canon. But why it made the cut, it wasn't because it was a celebration of human love. Beginning with the rabbis and up through the Christian tradition, it has been interpreted as an allegory of God's love for Israel. That's how the rabbis interpret it. And then the Christian tradition has interpreted as God's love for the soul or Christ's love for the church. Again, in the book of Revelation, the church is called what? The bride of Christ. That's an image that actually comes from the Hebrew scriptures, the idea that Israel was God's chosen beloved. And there are thousands of works. Now, again, this, it's not so much part of the Reformation. Matter of fact, it, it almost dies with the Reformation. But there are thousands of works that talk about the Song of Psalms, sermons, treatises. Bernard of Clairvaux preached over 400 sermons on the Song of Songs and died halfway through. He didn't even get to halfway through the book. The Dark Night of the Soul, maybe one of the greatest spiritual writings of all time, begins its discussion about this idea when we feel abandoned by God from passages from the Song of Songs. Though our tradition emphasizes the love of God through God's majesty and glory, I think it's equally important to consider that the idea that God has an extravagant love for each of us, that we are the beloved of the immortal. And I think today's emphasis on the beloved disciple hopefully will open us up to new realities about what it means that you and I are the beloved of God. Now, the post-resurrection stories give us powerful and vivid accounts of Jesus' encounters with three of his disciples. You know, it's tempting to turn them into archetypal figures, and I probably did a little bit over the last three weeks. Mary is the faithful one. Thomas, the skeptical one. Peter, the incomplete penitent. And so it's understandable that, that the gospel even invites us to kind of put ourselves in each of these positions. And, you know, even though there is this attempt to try to be allegorical, there's such a naturalism in the Gospels. I mean, Mary's determined grief, Thomas's dark reference to Jesus's scars, Peter's anguished three questions. I mean, they really open us up to, to human drama and human pathos. 
And our imaginations are invited to speculate about these three figures, these three followers of Jesus. It is to the credit of the writer of the fourth gospel, and I think the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, that these first century figures, they feel so modern. They can both be who we are aspirationally and in reality. All of us doubt, or many of us doubt. All of us have times when it's been hard for us to fully grasp our sins. All of us have looked for Jesus and have not been able to find him. But there is a fourth figure present throughout the Passion and Resurrection narrative that I think is purposely in the shadows, the beloved disciple. Now, the gospel, and again, I've talked about this before, the ending of John's gospel is a little complicated. It seems like it could have ended with chapter 20, and then you had this add-on chapter 21. And the verses we read this morning basically identify the beloved disciple as being the author of the book. Okay, now there's all kinds of speculation about who this is. The tradition has said it's John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, one of the inner, inner circles. Okay, But I think for today's sermon, we should honor the fact that the author purposely remains anonymous. Now, there are at least six explicit references to the beloved disciple. It, it actually in Greek is the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's easier to say beloved. Okay. And the first one is at the Last Supper. Okay. The beloved one is the one leaning on Jesus' breast. And again, that's been immortalized in art. Most of the art, if you think of the Last Supper, you know, of course, the Vinci's is the most famous, but almost all of them portray this figure leaning on Jesus' breast, the beloved. And Jesus announces that one of them is going to betray him. And I like Peter goes, Peter whispers in John, or the beloved's ear, ask him who it is, right? If any of you have multiple siblings, okay, there was always one that was put up to asking, right? Okay, all right. In my house, it usually was the youngest, okay, because they figured that he had the best chance of getting what he wanted, which was a myth, by the way, but they perpetuated it anyway. So Peter kind of whispers and, and the beloved's ear, ask him who it is. And the first time we meet the beloved disciple, he asks, who is it? Now, it's interesting in literature, it's music, that who is it has been often kind of mutated into is it I, right? And part of it is from Mark's gospel. In Mark's gospel, all the disciples, when Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me, they all ask, is it, is it I? Is it me? Am I going to be the one to do it? And I think at least part of the function of the beloved disciple is to invite us to what it means to be the beloved of the Lord. And the first time he is designated as such, I'm assuming it's a he, but I could be wrong, is in John 13 at the Last Supper. And he's the one asked, who is it? And it's funny, his first reaction is not denial. I mean, Peter's reaction is denial, right? And I'll never, I'll never leave you. But the beloved says, who is it? And if you combine it with Mark's gospel, the implication is that he wasn't sure (laughs) if it wasn't him. Maybe the first step in being a beloved disciple is the realization that you are quite capable of betraying Christ. 
I think I mentioned last week, wouldn't it have been better if Peter, instead of saying, you know that I love you, Lord, it wouldn't have been more honest if, if he would have said, you know, I try. I try to love you, but um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. Really, isn't that, you know, the honest, the honest answer what a disciple really is? To be beloved is to realize that it's not really within you. God's love for you is not because of any particular thing in you <laughs> that merits that love. We're all capable of being betrayers. We're all capable of being deniers. And so to be a beloved is to realize it's a gift. And one that I may not be capable of always receiving. The other thing that strikes me in the various times that the beloved shows up is that he's kind of passive and silent. I mean, Mary and Thomas and Peter, for good and ill, are active agents, right? Mary, Mary is just not going to stop. All right? she's, at the, she's at the crucifixion. She goes to the empty tomb. An empty tomb doesn't stop her, right? She keeps looking. That's part of the power of who she is. Peter, for good or ill, makes his mistakes in motion, doesn't he? Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, he's the guy that, you know, walked on the water for, you know, about half a second. He's the guy that puts his clothes on to jump in the water, right? So he makes his mistakes in motion. Okay. Might not have been the brightest star in the sky, all right? Okay. If the disciples took an IQ test, I don't think Peter would have won, all right? But he, but he tries. And Thomas. I mean, I have a lot of respect for Thomas. Matter of fact, there are some scholars that speculate that Thomas is the beloved disciple. If that would be the case, then Thomas was at the cross too. And I, you know, I've seen him dead. I know he's, he's, he's gone, man. People don't come back from what happened to him. So don't tell me he's still alive. That's an illusion. We need to move on with our lives. Thank God he was wrong. But it's certainly understandable why he had that position, right? But the beloved just seems to be there, right? <laughs> and he's most of the time silent. He's at the trial. Okay, we don't often we don't look at John's version, but the beloved is is at the trial of Jesus. He runs to the empty tomb. Matter of fact, he gets there first. Remember, he's the one who gets there and does not enter. But it says that he believes. And then when Jesus, when Peter says, "Let's go back to let's go back to fishing," he's there with him, and he's silently present, observing the reconciliation between Peter. And John are between Peter and Jesus, right? Because after Jesus tells him, tells Peter how he will die, the prophecy of how he will die, <laughs> Peter turns to John, well, what about this guy? What's going to happen with him? And basically Jesus says, it, it, it's, it's, he says it in a long form, but basically he says, it's none of your business, Peter. And apparently, it's, it's kind of a convoluted section, but apparently there was a rumor or a legend in the other church that John was going to live until Jesus came back. Well, that didn't happen. So that the, the end of the gospel tries to correct that rumor or that misconception. But the beloved's just there kind of watching, taking it all in. 
And I do think part of being a beloved disciple is sometimes spending time being as opposed to doing. Listening instead of speaking. Waiting instead of acting. Thomas Merton talks about the difference between being and doing. He says, in order to find God in ourselves, we must stop looking at ourselves, stop checking and verifying ourselves in the mirror of our own futility, and be content to be in God and to do whatever God wills, according to our limitations, judging our acts not in light of our own illusions, but in the light of God's reality, which is all around us, and the things and people we live with. See, there's, there's a tendency for us to try to define ourselves by what we do. We try to be seen. We try to be affirmed in life. And there's nothing, it's a very human thing, right? Okay. Well, you know, validate my existence. Isn't that, you know, 90% of what um, social media is? Okay. It's trying to connect. I'm, I, I'm here. I'm somebody. I'm I'm real. I'm a person. Okay. And that's a very natural and human thing. We are social creatures, right? We are defined from a social perspective by our interactions with others. That's how we figure out what's going on in the world. Okay. All right. I watched my uh, uh, nine-month-old grandson the other other day, and man, he's just looking. He's taking it all in. Okay. You know. You know, occasionally he puts it in his mouth. You know, that's a good bet. All right, that's what's going on, man. I want to figure out what's going on. He's looking. Okay? Well, from the beginning, we're saying, okay, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? But to be the beloved disciple is to realize that ultimately my identity is in Christ. You're not, who you are is not retired, not your job. Not your social social uh, station, not what school you went to or didn't go to. Okay. Not how cute your grandkids are, although that's good. Okay, I'm happy to look at pictures, right? Not how successful or unsuccessful your kids are. Not if anybody knows your name or not. Your infinite worth as the beloved of God is based on you being God's child. It's based on God acknowledging you as his own beloved. And sometimes we need to just sit with that to take it in. Finally, maybe the most famous scene of the beloved disciples at the cross. We often hear it said, maybe in sermons, that Jesus was totally abandoned at the cross. That all his friends left him, but that's not true, right? First of all, the women stayed. Much of the, you know, at least a small group of the women stayed. Mary Magdalene, Mary, his mother, and, and the Gospels have kind of a, a different sort of characters depending on which Gospel you read. But but the women stayed, <laughs> which is a commentary on on men in, in some ways, right? But in John's Gospel, we have one of the disciples staying. It's the beloved, right? And there's a scene between, it's, it's, it's to me, it's one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking scenes in the Bible. Mary watching her son die a brutal death. Matter of fact, I would argue one of the most poignant pieces of art in all of Christian history 
is the Pieta, right? I mean, there's different versions of it. The most famous is Michelangelo's, the mother of Jesus holding her dead son in her, in, in her arms, the Pieta. Matter of fact, I've seen that tableau <laughs> happen in real life. I've, I've watched mothers hold their children as they died. And so Mary is present to the death of Jesus. And there's one disciple present as well, the beloved. And as I told the kids, the last thoughts of Jesus, some of the last thoughts of Jesus are with his mother. Woman, behold your son. Son, here's your mother. Here's your son, here's your mother. Now, our Catholic brothers and sisters will disagree with us about this, but we know that Jesus had siblings. Matter of fact, his half brother James, it's a half brother because we believe, you know, uh, in the virgin birth, but James becomes the leader of the early church. James the just. Matter of fact, the book of James is attributed to him. So we know that Jesus had siblings. We're, we're given their names in the Synoptic Gospels. So why does Jesus commend his mother into the hands of a non relative, assuming that this is not a relative? Well, I think it's part of the message that's in the Gospels. Belonging to Jesus is not biological. Matter of fact, it doesn't matter how close you are to Jesus, doesn't mean you understand. Being part of God's family, being part of Jesus' family, transcends biological connection. It transcends nation. It transcends ethnicity. But I also think that Mary represents a number of things in the gospel. And Luke, Mary is the ideal disciple. And John, I think Mary represents the church. And so here, Jesus is putting the church in care of the beloved disciple. And he's putting the beloved disciple in the care of the church. To be the beloved disciple is not to function individually in your own spirituality. It's not to function mystically on your own. But to be the beloved disciple means you remain connected. The church belongs to the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and the followers of Jesus belong to the church. The beloved disciple is to care for the blessed community and allow the beloved community to care for them. We are called as individual followers of Jesus to be part of a family, to be part of a community, to be part of the beloved, blessed community of Christ, the body of Christ, the family of God. All those things mean the same. And so one of the great gifts that Jesus gives us is each other. To be beloved of the immortal God is to be beloved in the context of a family. To follow Jesus and to receive his love is to do that together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand together and claim what we believe in the Apostles' Creed.